If you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, the letter to Titus, in just a second we're going to be uh, reading from there. We'll be reading from Titus chapter 2. So uh, the mighty Pacific smelt was once a plentiful fish. It's now one of the many different fish species that's actually on the uh, threatened list. But I remember as a kid, a a wee little lad, that I would go to Oregon, and I would go to the Oregon coast with my relatives because that was the big thing you did. You had to go fish for smelt. My grandparents would can the catch, and then they would eat this throughout the year. And so when the smelt would run in the winter, you would clear your schedule, you would cancel everything you had, and you would go there and you would just catch buckets and buckets and buckets of these fish. Now, I mention this to let you understand that at the time they were a plentiful fish, and in no way am I suggesting that us catching buckets and buckets and buckets of them was the cause for them being threatened. A Pacific smelt is by no means a large fish. I mean, unlike a Pacific salmon, which is a very large fish, uh, the average size of a Pacific smelt is about six to nine inches. So think of anchovy or herring or sardine. That's, that's about the size. Now, I mentioned this to you just to give context for the whopper that I caught. Uh, a Pacific smelt is by no means an intelligent fish. Uh, nothing like a discerning brown trout or even a, a wily steelhead. You see, to catch smelt, smelt, all you do is you, you tie a bunch of gold shiny hooks to a line and you dip them in the water. That's all it takes. You tie a bunch of hooks on the line and you just sit there doing this. You know, like one of those bird things, you know, that's dipping and drinking in the thing. That's all you do to, to catch Pacific smelt. You, you bob up and down, bob up and down, and, and then you just catch buckets and, well, used to catch buckets and buckets and buckets of them. So we're on this fishing pier and we're bobbing for smelt on the Oregon coast. It's cold for two reasons. One is because it's the Oregon coast. And two, it's because it's winter, and I'm wearing jeans, tennis shoes, shirt, sweatshirt, heavy jacket. I'm fully clothed because, you know, in Oregon, they frown upon fishing fully unclothed. Well, at least they used to. And uh, I lift up my rod, and there on my rod, there's a couple of smelt wriggling. And so I, I lifted onto the pier, and I began removing them and putting them in the buckets, and one of the smelt has unwriggled themselves from the hook and is wriggling on the pier headed back towards the water. And it was certainly, in my mind, an Oregon state record. I was going to get my picture in the paper with that smelt. You know, so I'm stepping forward and I'm reaching to grab this smelt. I want to re-catch my catch and I step off the end of the pier into the water. So now's probably a good time to tell you that I'm not a very good swimmer. And I was fully laden with clothes, and it was very cold, and uh, not only am I not a very good swimmer, I mean, I I swim like a rock, literally, and I was headed down to Davy Jones' locker. I mean, this was it. This is how I was going to die. I was going to die in that cold water, drowning, trying to catch that smelt. When all of a sudden I felt something grab the collar of my jacket and started lifting me up from the icy depths. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. 
Everyone on the pier that day could have given me the best advice in the world. They could have shouted things to me like, do better, try harder. Have you thought about becoming a better swimmer? They could have shouted all kinds of things to me in that moment. And you know what? Not a single thing anybody could say would have done any good for me. Would have done me no good whatsoever. What I needed was somebody to do something. And my uncle, who was standing there, sees the whole thing happen. I bob up once. He grabs me by the coat and pulls me back to safety. I didn't need what anybody could say. I needed what somebody could do. And and, and so in this moment, I'm there. He grabs me. I'm freezing cold. Unfortunately, I caught hypothermia, and I didn't make it. So they put me in the car, turned on the heater, and guess what they did? They went back to fishing. (laughs) Oh, the good old days, right? You know, kids these days are so coddled, right? I mean, sure, every once in a while, someone would come in and say, are you all right? You know, and they'd go back and they were fishing because the smelt were running and you had to. We're in a series from the book of Titus, and what we're doing is We're looking at the work of grace in our lives. We're looking at these two sections in the book of Titus that contain what has been called the most concise explanation of the gospel. Now, uh, Eric, go ahead and go to that slide. Our working definition of the gospel comes from the book shaped by the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into a right relationship with Him and eventually to destroy all the results of sin in the world. So that's what we continue to explore as we work through these two sections. Now I'm going to read, as I have been, Titus 2 beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to jump to Titus 3 beginning in verse 4 because these two sections are together. We're treating them as such. So this first one is from Titus 2 starting in verse 11. That is the way we should live because God's grace that can save everyone has come. It teaches us not to live against God nor to do the evil things the world wants to do. Instead, that grace teaches us to live now in a wise and right way and in a way that shows we serve God. We should live like that while we wait for our great hope and the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for us to pay the price to free us from all evil and to make us pure people who belong only to Him, people who are always wanting to do good deeds. And then skip down to chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, He saved us because of His mercy. It was not because of good deeds we did to be right with Him. He saved us through the washing that made us new people through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior, being made right with God by His grace we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, would you be with us this morning as we open your Word? Open our hearts and minds to understand the truth that you have for us. We pray through Christ. Amen. Now, so what we're doing is because these sections are are so um, 
uh, there's so much complexity in these uh, two sections because there's a lot going on. What we're doing is we're looking at the concepts or the doctrinal things. We're looking at them one at a time. We're just trying to break them down into some manageable pieces. And so uh, today what I want to do is I want to focus on this idea of salvation. I want to talk about salvation, and I want to do so in the form of two questions. Uh, the first one is a pretty easy question. We're asking the question, well, then, who is our Savior? I'm, you all get probably an A on that test. But the second question becomes a little more maybe difficult to process through or understand, and that is, what are we saved from? So those are the two things we're going to look at, who is our Savior and what are we saved from. So if you're looking in your Bibles, uh, you notice in verse 13, uh, there's two things that are said about uh, uh, Jesus. We encounter Jesus first as our great hope or blessed hope, as some translations say, and the appearing of God or the epiphany of God. So those two phrases, I like that, that Jesus is our blessed hope, He is the epiphany of God. Those sound like really good church diocese names, don't they? Like there's, there's schools out there that will have those names, our blessed hope, you know, um, the epiphany of God. But what I want you to notice are those last four words where Paul is telling Titus that, that we should live a certain way, that grace is compelling us, that grace is pushing us, that grace is teaching us to live in a certain way as we wait for our great hope the coming of the glory of our great God, and these four words here, and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to look at. So yeah, the answer to the first question, who is our Savior? Jesus Christ is our Savior. The reason that He is our great hope or our blessed hope is because He's our Savior. The reason that He is the epiphany of God or the coming of the glory of God is because He is our Savior. So we're looking to Jesus as something more than just a, a good man or a good teacher. We're looking at Jesus and we're coming to Jesus as Savior. Now, Jesus Christ is our Savior because He saves us. That's why He's Savior. See, it's a title. It's a description that talks about the work or the function of what Jesus does, in much the same way that a teacher is someone who teaches, a writer is someone who writes, you're doing great, a welder is someone who welds, and a fisherman is someone who wastes a lot of money and you never ever see them, spends very little time at home. The Bible shows us who Jesus is that He is our Savior because of or by what Jesus does. That that's why He's our Savior, because He saves. And you flip that around and it says the same thing. What does Jesus do? He saves, therefore Jesus is Savior. This means several things that may seem obvious, but let's just work through them quickly. First, it means you cannot save yourself. Now, this is so important because in so many ways that are subtle and so many ways that are not so subtle, we're still trying to save ourselves. I mean, if you think that the point of Christianity is to have all of your sins forgiven, you get cleaned up, and then from that day forward, I'm going to try hard, try hard, try hard, try hard, you're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to make yourself, your own actions, your Savior. 
And so in some ways, in many subtle, many not so subtle ways, we're still trying to save ourselves by our own righteousness or by our own merit. But you cannot save yourself. The second thing this shows us is that, well, we need a Savior. If we cannot save ourselves, if we cannot, we need a Savior. We need, as we've seen in Titus, we need salvation from our sin, but yeah, sometimes we also need salvation from our own righteousness. You can't make any spiritual progress in your life until you realize, admit, and act upon your need for salvation. You come to a standstill spiritually until you come to the place in your life where you realize two things. I need someone to save me. And you realize and admit your need for a Savior, someone to come into your life and change you and make you a different person. The third thing we see is that salvation is a gift. I mean, this is over and over and over again in Scripture talking to us about how salvation is a gift. You must be firmly grounded in the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus because everything that you do in Christ originates from the acceptance, from the grace, and the salvation that you already have in Christ. And so, fourth, this tells us that Jesus is our Savior. And I'm not telling you something you probably don't already know, but yet still today, many people are willing to come to Jesus as a good teacher, Many people are willing to come to Jesus as a good man, something, someone who lived a good life and had good things to say. You have to see Jesus as Savior. You have to see Him as Lord, not just someone who dispenses good advice or good teaching, because this is so important. We are not saved by what Jesus said. We are saved by what Jesus did. And this is the important thing for us to remember. Uh, we were in uh, Florida one year on one of those, let's go visit the parents because they live in Florida vacations. Anybody ever had one of those? Just changed the state probably. Uh, we were at the house of some friends of my parents because the friends had a massive pool and this massive pond full of uh, peacock bass. And so, you know, the kids wanted to go, and they, we all were there, and we're visiting them, and, and the, the pool is up by the house, and the, the lake and stuff is down a little bit distance. And, and you can guess where I was. I was, you know, fishing at the pond, and our kids were playing with the grandkids of the family, and everyone's having a time. You need to know they were supervised, all right? There was supervision, um, the kids would have been little. I, I, Beth, I forgot to ask you how old they were. I think Madison was six or seven. Reese would have been four or five at the time. And, and I'm down there fishing and everything's going fine. And all I heard was the way that Madison said Reese's name. That's all I heard. But it was the way she said his name. And I, and I dropped my rod on the ground and I sprinted up the pathway to the pool to see Reese struggling in the deep end of the pool. Now, have I mentioned I'm not a good swimmer? <laughs> right? But I gave no thought to this whatsoever. I mean, fully clothed 
and all of this, I just dove into the water and I grabbed Reese and I got him to the edge of the pool so they could get him out. You know, I could have stood on the side there and I could have said a lot of helpful things to him in that moment. Just try harder, son. I could have given him some really good advice, right? You should have thought about taking swimming lessons, son. But none of that would have been any help to him at that moment. The only thing that would have helped him in that moment, the only thing that could save him was to jump in the water. Not what I could say for him in that moment. What I could do for him. So this is the first thing that Titus is teaching us. Something that we need to be reminded of, that Jesus is our Savior. It's important that we understand this as we try to tackle the question, so what are we saved from? Because if there is a Savior, it implies that we're being saved from something. So we look at the work of Jesus as Savior. A Savior is someone who saves someone from danger. Peligroso es mi nombre medio. The word Savior is connected in the Bible to two words, the word deliver and the word deliverance. This one's way too easy, and I apologize. Now think about the ways in which we use these words, right? The word deliver and deliverance. Since I don't want to keep saying deliverance, so I'm going to use the word delivery. Okay, deliver and delivery. So we think about deliver, right? And we think about something that is brought to us, right? So it's, you know, Grub Dash, Pizza Planet, fed up with USPS, right? That's the things that are brought to us. And there is an element of which that's true in this word, this word that Paul is using when Jesus is our Savior, something that is brought to us. But there is a stronger connection, a greater connection with the delivery that is related to or associated with childbirth. That's the stronger connection that's being made here, a bringing forth. So, which is why I've said this before in Spanish, the word for childbirth is such a great expression. It's da luz, which means give light or bring to light. So, in the New Testament context, when we're looking at this word Savior, it's closer to childbirth than it is to curbside delivery. Though maybe that's where this latest curbside delivery craze is going, you know, I mean, can you imagine you, you pull into the hospital parking lot, you pull into a numbered slot, and you pull out your phone and text the word delivery to 417-269-3000. I can tell it's a really good joke and best sitting there going, no, 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 no. You should have seen the, the word I was going to use for the text this word to. I mean, you think about this delivery childbirth, bringing life, bringing someone from this place to another. This is what the New Testament word Savior is talking about. It's talking about a delivery. It's talking about something that is brought to us, yes, but it's talking more about where we are brought from, that we are taken from one place and that we are brought to another. So this implies three things about Jesus. First, there is something to be saved from. Second, there is someone to be saved. And third, there is someone who can save. So when we hear the word salvation or saved used in church circles, you know how we normally use it? You know, somebody says, I'm saved, 
And what they usually mean is, I'm going to heaven. Right? That's what they usually mean. And then they spend the rest of their life wondering if they are saved and going to heaven. Because that's just how it works with us for some reason. And when they ask you, are you saved? What they're really asking is, are you going to heaven? Okay, listen carefully. This misses the point of salvation. It completely and totally misses the point of salvation. It misunderstands the mission, the work, the action of Jesus as Savior. What it does is, if that's all it is, then what it's doing is it's minimizing what we are saved from. I mean, if going to heaven is all that there is to being saved, then why did Jesus have to die for this to happen? So there's something much more here. There's something that's deeper and greater for us to understand. And so we have to wrap our heads around the idea of, okay, so what is it that we're saved from? Because Jesus is Savior, it means there's something He's trying to save us from. The Bible describes it as the wrath that is to come. And that word wrath means punishment. Jesus talks about this day. He, he talks about it in terms of a day of, of great distress upon the earth, a day of wrath that will be against the earth. You know, when you hear people say, there will be hell to pay, that's what this statement is talking about, that there's something in the future that's not good, and that it's there, and that it's coming. But but unlike sin, which is an impersonal force, the wrath is the wrath of God. And it's the wrath of God that is poured out against sin. I mean, this is what verse 12 is talking about when it says that grace is teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It's teaching us to say no to those things which are against God. We say no, we listen to grace as our teacher because of the damage that sin does to our lives and that sin does to the lives of others. See, if there's nothing to be saved from, we don't need a Savior. So we have to see salvation as much, much more than just some, you know, get out of free jail card and, 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 go, and go to heaven. Salvation is salvation from the wrath of God that is poured out and will be poured out against sin. We don't like to talk about this much because, boy, we just sure got talked about a lot in our growing up. I mean, we got beat up with this kind of stuff. And that missed the point also. Because in beating people up with this doctrine, what it omitted, what it missed was, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we have to understand that the wrath of God poured out upon sin is a real thing. And it is coming. God will destroy sin, and He will destroy the results of sin in this world. All pain, all injustice, all that is wrong in this world, all that has gone wrong. There is a day coming when through Jesus Christ, God will make all things right. So Jesus comes as our Savior to rescue us, to deliver us, to save us from this day. That's what God wants. 
He wants people to be saved from the impending destruction that is coming against sin. And so Jesus comes as His gift to be our Savior and to be the answer for our sin. So what do we do with the devastating and destructive power of sin? I mean, do we ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist? Do we dismiss it? Do we shelve sin as some antiquated construct that doesn't really apply anymore? You know, times change, situations change, what was wrong back then is no longer wrong now. Do we minimize sin? Is it just there, but you know, it just doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care. Do we manage sin? Do we say, okay, it's an ever-present problem, so I'm just going to learn how to live with it and deal with it? For you to understand what Jesus has done for you, you have to understand the destruction that sin brings. That it is an invasive and pervasive problem in this world. It's a power. It's a force unto itself which brings death and separation from God. This is why verse 14 of chapter 2 describes it as Jesus saving us from this evil, he says. So God loves us and God is for us. And when God is for us, nothing can be against us. But what doesn't dismiss that he cannot ignore, he will not dismiss He will not minimize or manage sin. His perfect love, His perfect justice will not ignore or dismiss that which has caused so much damage and destruction to His perfect creation and to His people, the people that He loves. I mean, how could we serve a God who refuses to bring justice into this world? And so we have to see the justice of God just as perfect and loyal as His perfect and loyal love. But in the goodness of who God is, we trust in His holiness, in His justice, that He will punish sin. But here's the best part. He doesn't want to punish us. God knows that He will punish sin But his heart for people, his desire for people is not to punish them. So God has chosen for sin to suffer his anger, for sin to suffer his wrath. This is because the suffering which sin brings into the lives of so many people separating us from him. But God did not choose us to suffer his anger. The Bible says that instead, He has chosen us to receive salvation that He gives through Jesus. That that's what He's chosen for us. That's what His desire is for you. And that God made this decision while you were still against Him. God made this decision to punish sin and to choose you to receive salvation when you were living in your rebellion. The ultimate expression of God's great love for us was that He has given us salvation while we were against Him. It's poured out then through Christ that we are saved from the anger of God through Jesus. We've been made right with God by the blood of Christ's death. Jesus became sin so that we could become His righteousness. Through Jesus Christ, God removes sin. So that expression, there will be hell to pay, well, hell has already been paid. 
It's been paid. The debt has already been paid. Jesus conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. There is no condemnation. There is no hell to pay for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, this is what we're saved from. And this comes only from our great God and Savior, our blessed hope, the appearing of God's great glory, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who paid the debt that we owed, who paid the price that we could not pay. God is not shouting instructions from on high as to how we can save ourselves. He is not up there shouting, try harder. Especially you. You know who I'm talking about. You know, he's not up there shouting instructions, giving advice, telling us what we should do, try harder, do better. No. He jumped into the pool to save us. He said, this is the only way. So he jumps into the pool and he grabs a hold of us and says, I'll never let you go. Jesus gave himself for us. He paid the price to free us from evil. So we see Jesus as our Savior, and we see what Jesus saves us from. How could we not respond in worship, in gratitude, in love, in praise, in obedience, and surrender? How could we not, when we see what Jesus has done for him, just say, okay, Lord, let's try it your way now. By faith, We trust in Him and that Jesus alone is enough. His work, not ours. His goodness, not ours. His righteousness, not ours. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit is speaking deep into our hearts to those who do not yet know you, who have not yet come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that that your Spirit would convict them in this moment. For those who have walked with you for a while, who were so tired and weary from from this burden of self-salvation, I pray that the Spirit would speak truth into their heart and, and relieve this burden that we trust in you. Father, I pray that that as we consider these great things that you've done for us, that you would cause within us a fire that burns to give you everything that we have, to give you all that we would do. You have given yourself wholly to us. So I pray that we would give ourselves wholly to you. We pray through Christ. Amen.